Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for joining us at The Next Track. We are brought to you this week by Econ Technologies, the makers of ChronoSync backup and synchronization software. I will have more to say about ChronoSync in just a bit, as well as a special offer for you. This is episode number 84 of The Next Track, and it's the end of the year. And there have been a, a few listener questions that we've been wanting to get to that, well, they probably really didn't deserve a full episode. So we thought we'd spend a little bit of time on three smaller topics today, sort of an Ask Doug and Kirk episode. Uh, so a listener has asked about AirPods, and actually I'm curious too. Uh, they've been out for about a year. And after the initial buzz died down, I stopped paying much attention. So it might be a good time to ask you, I know you have a pair, um, for instance, how do AirPods compare to wired EarPods? Well, the EarPods that come with Apple devices aren't very good. We had a discussion maybe six months ago about this, not in an episode, but in a, in a private discussion. And we both took out the EarPods that we had never unbundled from our last iPhone or whatever it was and put them in and listened. And we just said, yuck, they don't sound good. EarPods are, they're tinny. They're, they're not even as good as those flat round earbuds of the past, which I kind of liked. I, I thought they were even more comfortable. I would say the AirPods sound slightly better, but what I like about the AirPods is the convenience. I use them for a couple of things. I use them for phone calls when I'm at home. I use them when I'm walking on the treadmill and listening to podcasts. Sometimes I use them when I'm lying in bed and listening to an audiobook. And I don't really care too much about the sound quality. And sometimes if I'm walking on the treadmill, I'll listen to music and I want to hear the music, but I don't care if it sounds like, you know, the artist is in the room with me and that kind of thing. What I like is the convenience. Uh, previously, my headphones of choice, I'll put a link in the show notes. It was a lightweight Sennheiser. I believe it's called the PX100-2i. Great naming conventions they have there. And what I liked about it is it was lightweight, it was foldable, and it also has an inline remote and microphone. So I could use it for phone calls yeah. and I could adjust the volume by pressing the little buttons on the wire. And since I've gotten the AirPods, I've just put those headphones away. I don't use them anymore um, because, again, the AirPods are convenient. Once you've paired them with your iPhone, you just take them out of the case, put them in your ears, and they automatically pair. Again, you don't have the problem that you sometimes have with Bluetooth headphones of having to manually connect them to go into the settings and, and connect them. So that flexibility for me makes all the difference. Now, they don't have to be paired and then repaired with each device you want to use them with each time, right? No, the settings actually sync across other devices. So you don't need to pair them with your iPad or your Mac, but you do need to manually connect them. So right now we're recording this. I'm on my iMac. And if I go into the Bluetooth uh, menu in the menu bar, I would have to choose my AirPods and connect to get them to move over to the Mac. But I don't need to go through that pairing process where you press the button and you wait for it to recognize it. So all, all of that syncs across all your devices, even an Apple Watch if you have one. You can immediately select it. Okay, so the convenience sounds great, but I think that for, well, AirPods go for around $150. And when you're used to getting free EarPods when you buy an iPhone, some people may expect great audio quality for that price. It's probably a little bit better than the EarPods, but it's not great sound quality. If you want headphones to make music sound good, you don't get something like this. Yeah. You get real headphones. Right. Um, one of the problems I experience with earpods is that 
they're not snug in my ear and I lose a lot of the low to mid-range response unless I actually hold them in place with my fingers. Um, and other times I find that they move enough so that every once in a while I kind of have to tug on the wires to realign them in my ears. So my concern would be that AirPods may jostle around a little too. I mean, they're pretty much the same shape and size of ear pods, except they don't have wires. Right. They don't have wires. So you're not going to knock them out because you've bumped into the wire or because the wires are constantly pulling on them. Now, I, I wouldn't, I'm not a runner, but I wouldn't run with them in my ears because they would eventually fall out. I know that some of my colleagues, when these first came out, they sort of danced around their office for a while to see if they fell out and they didn't. But, you know, all you need to do is tilt your head enough and move in the right angle and they probably would fall out. They, they don't sit firmly in my ears. And, and this, of course, is a problem. It's, it's a one-size-fits-all. And this is a problem with all kinds of earbuds, except for in-canal earbuds, which you have the different size adapters. I think you'd find, you know what you could do? You could try. You could take a pair of ear pods that you don't use or that's broken or something, cut the wires off and stick them in your ear and see how they fit. Don't mind me, honey. I'm just testing fake AirPods. They wouldn't sound very good, but walk <laughs> around the house for a few hours and see how it feels. I, I find that I forget these are there. They are light. They don't get in the way. Um, you know, there's some practical features like a double tap and you can either play pause or next track or invoke Siri. I use the play pause for that. But you can also pause just by taking one out of your ear. It recognizes when they're in your ears. So without the wired dongle thing that has volume and pause controls, where are the controls for AirPods? There are no controls. Yeah, but you said you could tap and double tap. So what do you tap? Is there a button? The, you just tap and it has some sort of, I'm guessing it has a small accelerometer to detect a tap. All right. So I guess a better question is, what can you control with the taps? You can program each of the AirPods to one of, Five different settings off, obviously, Siri, play, pause, next track, and previous track. So I have the left one set to next track because that automatically plays this podcast, right? It's amazing how Apple got that to work. Isn't it? And I have the right one set to play, pause. So minimal controls, ultimately only two at a time, one per ear, as it were, depending on but how you set it up. That, but that that's really practical because if you're, again, if I'm on my treadmill, um, I do have a, what do you call it, a holder for the iPhone, along the handlebar of the treadmill, but I don't want to have to lean, maybe wake up the phone to pause it or do the next track or whatever. Right. Uh, let's talk about charging. AirPods need power, of course, unlike wired headphones. So you charge the AirPods in their little case. Yes. Sort of the size of a dental floss dispenser. And the case isn't simply an adapter for charging the AirPods. The case itself, when it's not plugged in and charging, is a kind of charger itself too, right? Right. The AirPods have small batteries and the case has larger batteries. So you charge the case and that charges the AirPods. Right now, for instance, I'm looking on my iPhone. If you open the case and the iPhone that they're paired with is awake, you get a little dialogue, which I'm going to show Doug here so he can see it. Oh yeah, I see. You've got, uh, yeah, you've got levels for both. And it shows the charge yeah. in the AirPods and it shows the charge in the case. So right now it's 100% in the AirPods themselves and 92% in the case since I charged the case, I think last week. All right. So maybe one charging session a week for the case. And then what kind of mileage do you get? What kind of mileage? How many times would you need to recharge the AirPods to the case in a day, say? You know, I've never been able to test that because I don't use them long enough. It's not like I walk around all day You like, like you, I work at home. So I'll use them for an hour at a time here or there. I think the if I, if I remember correctly, the AirPods themselves have about a four-hour charge. 
and the case can charge them maybe five or six times. So you get you could do an international trip and not have to worry about charging them. And to, to charge them, you just plug a lightning cable into the case. If you carry a portable battery pack around with you, which many people do when traveling, you'll have a, a USB to lightning cable, and they charge very quickly. So good for convenience, listening recreationally, but not good for critical listening. Absolutely not. I don't recommend them for music. I recommend them for the convenience. And I would say that I would say they are the most convenient headphones I have, headphones meaning any on, in, or over-ear listening device. Well, frankly speaking, I mean, considering the price of AirPods, you might want to consider other types of headphones anyway, wouldn't you say? Well, if your feelings about sound quality don't skew toward the audiophile, you may be more than happy with them. I would, if I was commuting, I would say the sound is good enough to listen to for commuting, but you just don't get great sound. Uh, any decent on-ear or over-ear headphones are going to sound much better. Okay, let's pause here. We have a couple of questions to get to in just about a minute on ripping audio and also moving your iTunes library, and we'll get to those in just a minute. As regular listeners know, we are both big on backups. I mean, even if you're just using Time Machine, that's a good thing. But there are many situations where you may want more than Time Machine's one-trick pony, and that's why you should have a look at Chronosync from Econ Technologies. Chronosync is a superior backup and file synchronization app. You can use it to do backups to and from any mounted volume or server. In fact, anything you can mount as a volume can be used for backups. Of course, Chronosync is ready for High Sierra and the new APFS file system. And there's a couple of things that I really like about Chronosync. First, you can do some really fancy scheduling once a day, once a week, monthly, or any combination. You can schedule different scheduling tasks at different times. And you can trigger backups based on file system activity. For instance, you could use Chronosync to backup a particular folder when the files you're working on have changed. Say you're working on a big video project or a huge CAD file. It's a breeze to make incremental backups while you work. And I say it's a breeze because Chronosync has a terrific setup assistant that simply asks what you want to do, when you want to do it, and then bam, you're done. Chronosync does so much more than I have time to talk about here, like drive cloning, bootable system backups, syncing iTunes libraries. I highly recommend downloading the 15-day trial to see how it can fit into your workflow. In fact, because you're an Extract listener, when you decide to purchase Chronosync, you can save 25%. Now, here's what you do. You go to this episode's page at thenexttrack.com. This is episode number 84. And click the link there that takes you to the Chronosync page. And the 25% savings will be yours. Whatever your backup or sync scenario, Chronosync has got you covered. Download the full-featured 15-day trial of Chronosync today at econtechnologies.com. And we thank them for being a sponsor of the next track. Great software. We've gotten a few emails from listeners who are curious how they can rip different types of optical discs. And we did a show about six months ago, episode number 57, everything you wanted to know about optical discs. And Andy Doe joined us to discuss the different types of optical discs CD, DVD, Blu-ray, DVD audio or DVD-A, HDCD, SACD, etc. We all know how to rip CDs. You put them in your CD player and you use iTunes or you use another app. And it's interesting to note that the latest update to iTunes 12 removes the CD actions preferences if it doesn't detect an optical drive, either internal or external connected to your computer. These are the actions that you would use to tell iTunes to immediately rip a CD, rip it and eject it, etc. Yeah, because in case you didn't know, Macs don't come with super drives anymore. 
In fact, I grabbed the optical drive out of an old MacBook Pro, stuck it in a case, and I used that as an external optical drive. But as far as ripping the audio from non-CD audio optical disc, it can actually be pretty complex. I'm going to link to two articles in the show notes. One of them is from 2010, and I think the other is from 2012. Back then, I wrote for Macworld about how to rip audio from DVDs, and in the later articles, how to rip audio from Blu-rays. And I pointed out that a lot of people, myself included, have DVDs and Blu-rays of concerts, live performances, operas, etc., and want to rip the audio. Now, back in the day, there was software that allowed you to do this, and you had to rip the DVD or Blu-ray to video. Then you had to use different software to strip out the audio, and it could be really complicated. These days, I'm going to recommend one simple way to do this, and that's to use Audio Hijack. We'll link in the show notes. Audio Hijack is an app that can record anything that your Mac can play. We had the developer Paul Kafasis join us to talk about in-house streaming in episode number 50. This is It's his company, Rogue Amoeba, that makes Audio Hijack. It's the app that we use to record the podcast. It's the app that I use to record the Shakespeare plays on the BBC and everything else. Now, the advantage of ripping the DVD and extracting the audio means that, let's say you have a three-hour opera or concert on a DVD, it maybe takes 20 minutes to rip it, and then it takes maybe 20 more minutes to manipulate to get the audio. If you use Audio Hijack, what you're doing is you're playing the DVD on your Mac and you're recording the audio in real time. Now, back in 2010, when I wrote about this, I was looking for a streamlined solution, but frankly, it's such a headache dealing with software that's not been updated, that's out of date, that doesn't always work, that if I want to do this now, I just use Audio Hijack. You know, back in the dark ages of the mid to late 20th century, when you wanted a cassette copy of your favorite LP, you had to record it in real time. Sure. So I'm not averse to recording things in real time. My problem used to be that once I took the time to make a mixtape, I didn't want to listen to it again because I just did listen to it while I was making it. <laughs> So there is a minor inconvenience in real-time recording, but in this case, it's, it's a simple and sure thing. You might not want to listen to it at the same time, but let's say, let's say you've got the DVD or the Blu-ray of Philip Glass's Einstein on the Beach. I'll link to that in the show notes. It's a wonderful film performance from two or three years ago. It's about five hours long. You may not want to listen to the whole thing, so you can put it on before you go to bed, let it play, let it record at the same time. And then you'll have the music. Now, of course, you, you don't get the individual tracks. And depending on how the DVD or Blu-ray is recorded, it may or may not have chapters for individual songs. It's a concert or individual sections of an opera. You can always split them later. But frankly, the, the hassle that you used to have to go through, particularly with Blu-rays, to demux the audio and the video that's separating the different elements, it was just a headache. And, and the advantage of Audio Hijack is it can record any disc that you want to play. Now, if you wanted to rip the audio from a DVD, you had to use one type of app. And if you wanted to use a Blu-ray, you had to use another. And then after you ripped the audio, it was in different formats. So you'd need different software for each one. Audio Hijack can do DVD, a Blu-ray, or a DVD audio, which it's really the only way that I know of that you can rip audio from a DVD audio, in fact. I've never found an app that can pull the audio off, off that type of disc in any other way. Now, what's going to happen when you record like this is you're going to get one big file. And if you want to split this file up into separate tracks, you're going to have to use some kind of audio editor. Audacity is an app that comes to mind that can do this. But Apple's GarageBand app is also a, a handy audio editor, and it's free. 
you can actually do quite a bit of stuff with audio on GarageBand that has nothing to do with its banks of musical instruments or even creating music. And did I say it's free? It is still free, right? Yeah, it's still free. My tool of choice is called Fission. It's also by Rogue Amoeba, the company that makes Audio Hijack. And, you know, I'm not trying to just push their products because they have sponsored the podcast, but I've written a book about Audio Hijack, which is Take Control of Audio Hijack. It's an app that I know well. Fission is really my go-to tool for working with audio. A couple months ago, I mentioned one of my next tracks was a concert by Bruce Springsteen when he did his solo acoustic concerts in 1996. And there's all this interesting banter between the songs, which is interesting the first time you hear it, but the sixth time you hear it, it's like, okay, I just want to skip. So I took all of the tracks with Fission and I cut out all the banter, and now I can listen to the entire concert without having to listen to him tell his stories. That's interesting. One of my favorite albums is The Who Live at Leeds, and I have a super deluxe mega edition with virtually the entire concert, including Pete Townsend's interesting but ultimately superfluous stage bantering between a lot of the songs. And it would really be a simple matter to chop all that stuff out just to get to the music faster. It's relatively simple with this sort of visual editing tool. And, and of course, you're using Logic to edit podcasts, which is even more powerful. But you see the waveform. You can see when a song ends. You can tell when you get to the end of the song and all of a sudden it's very loud because there's applause. And you can cut after the applause and fade out the applause creatively if the person starts speaking while the applause is going in the background. It's not very complicated. And another thing I hear from 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 correspondents about is that they want to uh, record a playlist in its entirety that includes the crossfades from song to song. And short of recording it in real time, you can dump the tracks into GarageBand and stagger them on multiple tracks so that you can apply your own fade and export it like that. I'm not sure we want to meander into an audio editing topic here, but I do get asked about this stuff. If enough listeners are interested, maybe we can do an episode explaining how to do this sort of editing. We could have screenshots in the show notes and show people what the process is. So if you are interested in this, leave us a comment on the show page for this episode. Finally, we're going to talk about moving, merging, and otherwise fiddling with your iTunes media library. A question both of us hear regularly from users, and I mean this has been going on for years, is something along the lines of, I move my iTunes library, but now all my tracks are missing, or now all my tracks are duplicated, or all my tracks are dead, or some combination of that. Is there a way to fix this with Apple Script or something? And the short answer is, I'm here to tell you, no, you can't fix it later. You have to do it the right way the first time. I think the biggest issue here is what you shouldn't do. Yep. You shouldn't just say, hey, I'm just going to move all these files and iTunes is going to follow them. It doesn't work like that. As we've said several times in the past, iTunes is just a database. It doesn't know about your music. It just has a pointer to individual music files. It doesn't know what your files are. It doesn't know whether they're classical or rock or jazz. It just sees files. And one problem is that people often will just say, well, I'm going to just take all these files in the iTunes folder and move them to an external drive. And this is actually the most common use case is people who've run out of space on their computer and want to put their iTunes files on an external drive, and particularly now that computers often have SSDs, which don't have the same capacity. I'll link in the show notes to an article on my website, How to Move Your iTunes Library to an External Hard Drive. The process is really quite simple as long as you follow the instructions. If you say, well, I think I should do it this way, then sorry, you're going to lose your files or iTunes is not going to be able to find them anymore. 
You essentially tell iTunes to change the location of the media folder. You do this in the advanced preferences. You click the change button, you select the new folder, and then you click OK. iTunes will do a little bit of updating to the library, but then what you need to do to make sure that all of your files get moved is you need to go to the file menu, then the library menu, then organize library. A window is going to display, you need to check consolidate files, then you click OK. And at this point, iTunes is going to copy all of the files from the original location to the new location. Now, this can take a while if you've got a lot of files. Get some tea or coffee, go for a walk, take a nap. Right. Although I think some users don't believe that those instructions will work because it seems somehow counterintuitive to allow iTunes to move the file. So as a result, users leave one or more of those steps you described out of the recipe, or they they sort of remember reading those instructions somewhere, something about telling iTunes something. And so the story that I usually hear is that one, they copied the iTunes media folder to an external drive, and then two, went to the iTunes preferences advanced and told iTunes, this is the new location of my iTunes media folder. And then three, thought they were done. So here's what's going to happen. Indeed, new files that you add to iTunes now will go to the new location. The files you purchase or you rip or you convert will go to this new location. But the tracks already in iTunes still point to the files in the original location. And you may not even notice this while you're playing tracks on iTunes. In fact, you may think everything is going fine and trash that original iTunes media folder. Now, two things are going to happen in that case. iTunes will think the files are actually stored in the trash. And then if you were to, if you were to empty the trash, which I'm sure happens from time to time, the tracks in iTunes will be rendered dead tracks because they have no more associated files. You trash them. The files are gone. But wait, you have the files you copied to the new location, right? Except you can't match them back up. You can't reassociate them. You can. iTunes gives you an opportunity to do this one track at a time when you attempt to play each one. But otherwise, you can't reassociate a file with an existing iTunes track entry. So at this point, you might as well just re-add the files. And of course, this can lead to massive duplicate track issues. And, and that's only one scenario of what can go wrong if you don't do things correctly. This can be frustrating because people will often, as you say, end up with duplicates or find that they don't have any files. So the first thing you need to do before any of this is back up your media, your music and anything else that you're moving. And while you're at it, back it up twice, just in case. Some of us are obsessive. I've got three backups of my iTunes library. I'm sure, Doug, you've got multiples as well. You know, this might be a good time to remind our listeners that this week's episode is brought to you by Chronosync, the backup <laughs> and folder synchronization software from Econ Technologies. Don't forget, you can save 25% on Chronosync by... I'll, I'll remind you later. So the principles involved with moving a library are similar to those involved with merging and combining libraries. They are slightly different and I'll link to an article on my website, which is how to combine or merge two iTunes libraries. And it's a common question. You've had music on two different computers and you're getting rid of one of them, or you want to move all the music into one of them, or you want to move from each into the other. So they're both the same. The easiest way to do this is, and, and let's establish some parameters. Library A is the one that you want to be the canonical library, and library B is the one you want to bring into library A. Go to library B, get the iTunes media folder, drag it into the iTunes window, and let everything copy. 
Now, the problem with this is that you'll lose any personal metadata, play counts, last played dates, ratings, etc. If you don't care about it, do this. It's the easiest. You may end up with duplicate files, and, you know, Doug actually has an app that'll help you deal with that. I do. It's called Dupin, D-U-P-I-N, and it can find the duplicate tracks in your library by criteria that uh, you stipulate. For instance, typically two or more tracks are duplicates if they have the same name, artist, album, and track number. So you can find the groups of tracks that share those tags, and then you can filter for a, uh, a single keeper in each of those dupe groups by things like date added, like the newest date added, or the oldest date added, or by file type, or size, or last played, or what have you. And that's called dupe. And, and since I did mention dead tracks earlier, I'm going to uh, mention Super Remove Dead Tracks, which is an Apple script application that seeks out and deletes the dead tracks in your library should you have that tragedy befall you. But anyway, I'm sorry, you were talking about you were talking about merging. So the other option is to take all of the files from library B, bring them into iTunes, and then export a playlist file from library B and import that into iTunes. Now what this will do is it will retain all of that extra metadata, the ratings and the play counts and everything else. What I generally recommend is, is just create one new playlist, dump everything into it, and then export that file. But you may want to actually retain certain playlists you've made on Library B. And in that case, you'll have to go through and export each single playlist one at a time, which can be a little bit time-consuming. It depends on how much you care about your metadata, your playlists, and all that. You know, one thing, one thing to consider is that this can be a time to clean things up, to do a sweep and maybe get rid of all your playlists and rebuild them because you haven't been listening to them. Maybe delete all those ratings and play counts that you've been so obsessed about and start over. The, the stumbling block here is that there are proprietary tags that iTunes uses, and they don't get written out to the file's metadata iTunes will update some file metadata from track tags, but things like, as you call it, personal metadata, I call it historical tags, things like play counts, skip counts, last played date, uh, start and stop times, ratings. EQ settings. Right. EQ settings don't travel. But this information is all stored in the iTunes database. So in order to preserve all of the iTunes tags for the track entries, when you've moved the files pointed to by those track entries, you have to let iTunes itself update the connections to the files. There's really no way to tell iTunes that a particular track doesn't point to this file anymore, it points to that one. There's just, you can't do that. In any case, these tasks are not that complicated, moving a library, combining, merging libraries, but you need to be very, very careful how you do them. You need to do them exactly the right way because iTunes is not very intelligent. It just looks at the files, it looks at the file paths. In fact, if you were to change the name of your external hard drive while iTunes wasn't running, and then launch iTunes, it wouldn't recognize the files, whereas it knew they were there the day before with the drive with a different name. Well, since we're talking about doing surgery on your media collection, there's an issue that comes up when you want to uh, identify a bunch of tracks in your library that were purchased by someone else, so you can get rid of them, presumably. For example, uh, for a number of years, I had songs purchased by my wife and my daughter in my library, and I, I just don't want to have them around anymore. Now, you can't easily identify these. There's no way to, to do a search in iTunes or there's no smart playlist criteria for it. But there's a script called Track Down Purchases, which will go through each file in your library, read any existing Apple ID uh, data that's in the metadata, and then it will assemble all the tracks into individual playlists named for each Apple ID. You've used this because you were uh, you had multiple accounts. Yeah, I've I've... 
I've had accounts in three different countries, and it's useful sometimes to be able to sort out the music that comes from one country and not from another. In particular, when I lived in France, a lot of music that I bought for my son on my account, get rid of all that Britney Spears and Black Eyed Peas that he liked when he was young that he doesn't care about anymore. So as, as you've said, um, one thing I've done is I've migrated all of that from my iTunes library to a, a holding folder, not wanting to necessarily delete the files just in case. In case one of these days your son starts jonesing for some retro Britney? Well, it's more, it's more in case they're no longer available on the iTunes store, which happens sometimes. You can certainly stream them all on Apple Music, but the actual files, uh, you know, I've seen some of my purchases go unavailable. So it's better to just keep a copy. They don't take up a lot of space. Okay. Well, we're going to wrap this up now. If you have a question or a suggestion for a future topic you'd like us to investigate, get in touch. Uh, lots of our show topics actually are suggested by listeners. Every episode page of thenexttrack.com has a comment section, and there is a contact uh, button link at the top of every page that takes you to a contact form, and that's at thenexttrack.com. Before we present our next tracks, once again, we want to thank Econ Technologies, the makers of ChronoSync backup and synchronization software for sponsoring this episode. Be sure to download a full-featured 15-day trial of ChronoSync today at econtechnologies.com and then save 25% on ChronoSync. Go to this episode's webpage at thenexttrack.com. It's episode 84. And then click the link that takes you to the ChronoSync website. Kirk, what's your next track? My next track this week is a new recording of one of my favorite works by Johann Sebastian Bach. It's called The Art of Fugue or Die Kunst der Fuge. This recording is on Decca by Ottavio D'Antoni and the Academia Byzantina, which is a small ensemble that plays on original instruments. Now, if you are familiar with The Art of Fugue, it is a series of fugues and canons. There are 20 tracks. And the final fugue is unfinished. In fact, I made a mention of that on last week's episode with Daniel Spreadbury talking about scoring software, suggesting jokingly that if Bach had had this software, maybe he would have finished this final fugue. The old story was that he died before he could finish it, but that's since been proven to be not true. Nevertheless, there is something very interesting in listening to this work and getting to that last fugue, which is a, a fugue with three subjects, which is extremely complicated with multiple parts and how all of a sudden it just reduces to two and then to one part and then it just stops in the middle of a phrase. It's always a very moving moment for me to hear the end of this piece that doesn't end. In any case, this recording came out about a month ago and I just heard about it last week on Apple Music and I started listening to it and it's arranged for a string quartet, an organ, and a harpsichord. Now, this piece of music was written for keyboard. It's not clear which type of keyboard. And it has been performed in all sorts of different arrangements, from solo instruments, such as the organ to the harpsichord, the piano, to full orchestra, to chamber ensemble, to vial consort. And each recording has a different color. It has different tones. I really enjoyed the early pieces in this recording. And then when it got into bits with just the organ and the harpsichord, it kind of lost interest for me. So I'm going to listen to this again. This is a piece I've listened to hundreds of times in, in various versions. And I'm going to listen to this again and see if I can get over that feeling of these specific movements that didn't really please me. The sound in the early parts is wonderful. It's a, it's a very subtle arrangement, very delicate. And, and the string quartet is really an ideal ensemble to play this sort of fugue. But I'm not overwhelmed by it, so 
you might want to check it out. And if not, just look up Art of Fugue on your favorite streaming service or Amazon, and you'll find dozens of versions. I'll include a link to Apple Music in the show notes so you can check it out. Doug? In my house, when I was growing up, uh, there were three musicians that could just go by their first names. There was Fats, there was Louie, and there was Ella. And my mother, in particular, was a big Ella Fitzgerald fan. Used to hear her music all the time in the house. I don't, I don't have the expertise to describe how great a singer Ella Fitzgerald is, but I'm constantly impressed with the, the control she has over her voice and how she knows that a note that she's going for is going to be there when she goes for it is just an amazing thing. So it's just an extraordinary uh, singer and, and interpreter and, and improviser uh, with just her voice. Absolutely amazing. But anyway... The album I'm going to be listening to is called Ella at Zardy's. It's a live club performance recorded at Zardy's Jazzland in Hollywood in early 1956. This is this is a really big hotspot for music. Uh, Zardy's was located at Hollywood and Vine, not far from Capitol Records. So this was really a hot spot for music. This was recorded at about two and a half weeks into uh, an engagement that she had at Zardy's. So. Uh, everything is firing on all cylinders. Uh, the three guys backing her up, uh, just a piano trio. I don't know. I didn't recognize the names, so I imagine they're just local session guys. But really, they're they're just doing standards. And uh, she actually takes a few requests uh, from the audience, from the Zardis audience. And Zardis must have been a pretty cool place to go. It's one. Of, it's a high class joint, you might say, upper class, but you know, trying to trying to be cool and hip. This album is only about an hour long, and there are 21 songs on it. So the stuff whips by, and there's not a lot of room for a long improvisation. But I'm really looking forward to hearing it, especially since it's something that no one has heard in 60 years. And it differs from her regular recordings, which were typically of the songbook variety. For instance, she would do the songs of Cole Porter or the songs of Count Basie and that sort of thing. But this is a lot of variety and, as I said, a lot of standards and requests and popular songs. So it'll be very interesting to listen to. Ella Fitzgerald. Ella Edzardi's is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.